Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Colossians 1? We are continuing in our series in Colossians 1, and this week will be in verses 15 through 17. As you turn there, I want to begin by addressing the children in the room. I'd like to ask you all a question, and adults, you can think about this question as well. Kids, what do you think is the most important question any person can ask? In this life, what do you think is the most important question any person can ask? This isn't a trick question. I don't think it's a complex question if you've been going to church for any time. That answer to that question is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus is the most important question any person in this life can ask. Your answer to that question matters more than anything in this life. Have you ever wondered why, kids, every week here at Emmanuel Church, we read some sort of creed? We read some sort of confession, some combination of words written by old men or dead men that are packed with truths and facts about Christ. It's because we Christians know that we are nothing without the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the purpose of why we gather is so that we can learn more about who Jesus is and mobilize each other to tell the world and tell others who he is. At the core of the Christian faith is the belief that Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, died on a Roman cross for the sins of his people. To be a Christian is to know that sinful people can be forgiven by a holy God and reconciled to him in Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, our salvation is bankrupt if we know nothing of this one who died. We can never meaningfully appreciate what our salvation is if we don't appreciate who our Savior is. We cannot appreciate the wonder of Christmas or the cross until we rightly appraise the dignity of the one who came and the one who died. This morning we'll be in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17, and you may or may not know this, but verses 15 through 20 they form what many scholars almost universally agree to be an early creed of the, of the first century church. In short compass, these six verses, they convey perhaps the highest Christology in the New Testament. I had a pastor friend of mine this week. He said to me, Zach, with texts like this, you're looking at an ocean, and all you have in your hand is a spoon. And you're going to that ocean with your spoon, and you're saying, Lord, Please fill my spoon so I can help God's people understand just the grandeur of this ocean. So as I give you my spoon, I only ask that you appreciate that we're walking on holy ground as we read these verses and apply them to our lives. Would you please pray with me once more? Our dearest Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask you this morning to do that which only you can do, that in the preaching of your word, you could cause your Holy Spirit to bear this text upon us, to bring us into greater submission to it, and Lord, that you would exalt your Son, that you would humble us as sinners, and that you would bring us into greater conformity to our Lord Jesus in whose name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, in the time remaining, I want to open up these verses, Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17. 
under just two major points, and then I want to close with some applications. So two points, both of them are related to Christ. Point one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Point one, Christ is the image of the invisible God. In just a moment, we're going to consider the the meaning of that statement. But before we do, I I think it's just very important that we appreciate the context of uh, what Paul has been saying up to this point in Colossians and what he says immediately after this Colossian creed, after verse 20. So, the slightest contemplation of salvation leads Paul to doxology. The slightest contemplation of of man's plight in their sins leads Paul to consider the grandeur of Christ. Upon reflection of man's plight, the apostles' thoughts are elevated to the glory of Christ. Notice how this Christological creed is is bookended by the depravity of men. Look at verses 13 and 14. We were in these verses last week. Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. And he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What was man? Where was man? Man was in this domain of darkness. Now he's been transferred into this kingdom of the Lord's light, and he has forgiveness of sins. And then he moves to exalt Christ in verses 15 through 20. And then look what follows in verses 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... What is mankind to Paul? What is man on his own to Paul? To the apostle, man dwells in a domain of darkness apart from Christ. Man is lost in his sins apart from Christ. Man is alienated apart from Christ. Man is hostile in mind apart from Christ. Man is dead in his dirty deeds apart from Christ. Yet it's precisely this plight that that compels and propels Paul to to dwell on the identity of Jesus. What does Paul say of him? What does the Holy Spirit bring out of the apostolic mind? He says he is the image of the invisible God. I wonder what you think that phrase means. That the Lord Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. I think probably for many of us, when we hear that phrase, image of God, we think of Genesis 1. We think of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. We think of the Imago Dei. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I trust many of you have been in prayer this week regarding the Supreme Court's hearing on the issue of abortion. Everybody should care about that issue, but I wonder, why do you think Christians in particular care so much about this issue of abortion? It's because as Christians, we know that that great scourge of abortion, which has seen the deaths of tens of millions of unborn children, fundamentally rejects what it is to be human. That is, that all people, great and small, old and young, born and unborn, are created in the image of God. Like, do you get this? People, they're not a combination of carbonate matter. They have something of the likeness of God imprinted on their personhood. We know, as Christians, that all people are made in the image of God. But is that what Paul is talking about here? Is Paul suggesting that Jesus Christ is made in the image of God, or made in the image of God the way men and women are? Well, Christian, the answer is absolutely not. That is not what Paul is saying. While man 
in fact, truly has been created in the image of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the image. He's the real thing. Moreover, God the Son, who was made flesh and incarnate of the Virgin Mary, who was embodied on earth for 33 years, who is risen and ascended to the right hand of his Father, he himself encapsulates and reveals in his person everything the Father is. The Father and the Son are one. Christian, if you have seen Christ, you have seen God the Father. This is why Jesus says what he says to Philip in John 14. Remember, Philip, he comes to the Lord. He comes with this wonderful thought. He thinks it's quite pious. He's very proud of himself. He says to Jesus, show us the Father, and that'll be enough. Poor Philip. He didn't know what he just said. Jesus responded to him and said, have I been with you so long? And you still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father? I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Brothers and sisters, Christ as the image of God is not a cardboard cutout. He is the real thing. With all brilliance in his humanity, he conveys the limitless excellence of the Father. As Hebrews 1 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. As Apostle John says in John 1, in the beginning was the word, the logos, was, was Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And what did that word do? The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Friends, Christ is the image of his Father. They are one. But that idea of image involves even more than revealing the Father. You see, in the writings of Paul, Christ as the image of the invisible God, he's not only the object of Christian devotion, but as the image, he is the goal of Christian discipleship. He is the telos. He is the end of following Christ. What I mean by that is the aim of the Christian life is to gain greater conformity to that image of Christ who is the image of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul refers once again to Christ as the image of God. Yet notice how Paul holds out that same image, that icon, as the, the standard for sanctification. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the other. We're being transformed into the same image. Friends, God the Father desires his children to be like him. And this is one of the reasons he has revealed Christ to us. Jesus is the perfect standard of embodied righteousness. It's why Jesus calls on his people to follow him. This is why Jesus calls on his people to be like him. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, as, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters, when we see Jesus, we see the Father. He is the image of the invisible God. That's point one. Now point two. Christ is preeminent in and over all things. The Lord Jesus Christ is preeminent in and over all things. Paul, in these verses, he lays great stress on the fact that 
Christ is he's, he's preeminent. He's, he's supreme. He's supreme over all things. You see, verses 15 and 17, they have two parties. There's Christ and there's all things. And this is one of the th- reasons I, I just see so much beauty in Scripture. Because here we are, 2,000 years after the fact, and we still all fall into one of those categories. We're not Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are part of that all things party, that all things category. And the next few verses, that Paul, he communicates the relationship between Christ and all things. So under this point that Christ is preeminent in and over all things, notice first, all things are subject to Christ. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. There are a lot of us, and I think understandably so, that get hung up on that phrase, firstborn of all creation. What on earth does that mean? Is Paul implying that Jesus was created in time and is part of the creation? 1,700 years ago, there was an Alexandrian teacher named Arius, and Arius actually taught exactly that. Now, Arius, as a teacher, he taught many true things. He taught that Jesus was the Son of God, he taught that Jesus was made flesh, that Jesus died on a cross for the sins of people. He taught that Jesus rose from the dead. He taught that Jesus ascended and was seated at the right hand of God the Father. He got a lot of things right. But tragically, Arius got crucial things wrong. For he taught that Jesus, based on verses like Colossians 1.15, that he was in time created. There was a time when Jesus was not, said Arius. And it's for this butchering of the truth that he was ultimately condemned as a heretic. Now, now, why did he get this wrong? What, what did he get wrong? What was Arius's problem? Arius's problem was he didn't read his Bible closely enough. Because look at our text. You see, every positive statement that follows the phrase firstborn of all creation serves to emphatically deny that Christ was created and attests to the fact that he is creator that he is preeminent in all things. To put this another way, if I was trying to make the point that Jesus was a part of the cosmos, if I was trying to make the point that Jesus was created, I would do exactly the opposite of what Paul does in verses 16 through 20. Look at what he says. He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. If I told you I have a pet named Polly, and Polly is a parrot, and then I tell you Polly, she has gills, and she has fins, and she swims in rivers in Alaska, and she's orange, I'm not describing a fish. I'm describing a salmon. These things don't go together. In the Colossian Creed, Paul does not describe a created Christ. Rather, he proclaims that the Lord Jesus is sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe. But how are we to understand that word firstborn? What is Paul trying to convey with the idea, that, that name, that, that, that noun of, of firstborn? Does that still mean or imply that Jesus was born in time? See, friends, firstborn, we have to understand this. It's a title of rank, not of chronology. It's a title of rank. It's not a title of time. Think about the first lady of the United States. She's not the oldest woman in the country. 
It's not the oldest woman in America. Rather, there's a certain dignity that's attached to her station in life due, because of the dignity of her, of her husband's office. So we call her the first lady. There's an importance attached to her station in life. Well, that's what Paul is getting at with this firstborn of all creation. But it's also a biblical concept. This is the way, this is the way God describes David as the Messiah in Psalm 89. He says in Psalm 89, verses 27, this is God, Yahweh, reflecting on David, the Lord's anointed. He says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. See, brothers and sisters, firstborn is not a matter of time or chronology here. David was not the first king to ever exist in in the world. Neither was he even the first king in the history of Israel. Yet by sovereign right, God pronounces upon him that he is the preeminent one. And friends, so it was with David in a similar way. It is and always has been with Christ. The Father in eternity past has crowned the Son as firstborn. This is why in our creeds we refer to Christ as the Son, as as begotten from his Father before all ages. God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Begotten not made. Before all worlds, he is of the same essence as the Father. And when we say that he's firstborn of all creation, it's not in the same way that this church is made of bricks or that this pulpit is made of wood, but the way an absolute monarch reigns sovereignly over his subjects. All things are under him. All things yield to him. All things are subject to Christ. Notice secondly, All things were created by Christ and are sustained by Christ. Paul says in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Brothers and sisters, I trust you know this. But Jesus Christ is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. Kids, you know what a noun is? What's the definition of a noun? It's a person, place, or thing, right? There is no person, no place, or thing that has its being apart from Christ's command. No event occurs apart from his will. All things great and small are governed by his hand. You draw your next breath by the sovereign power and permission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can you appreciate that just for a moment? We believe that as we open up the word of God and saints gather here that Jesus is present with us. Jesus is here right now in a pronounced special way at the same time. As he ministers to the saints here, he is upholding the universe by the word of his power. Friends, it is beyond our ability to appreciate the depth of Christ's creativity. It's beyond our ability to appreciate the depths of his sustainability. This week I just thought of ways I could convey just the the sheer wonder of this truth. I thought about offering statistics about the universe, the healing or the height of the Himalayans, the depths of deep oceans, the expansiveness of the galaxy, the, the, the smallness or minuteness of, of molecules and atoms, the ferocity of certain beasts, the, the wonder of civilizations, 
Friends, all of these, Christ is creator and sustainer. Paul, for his part, he expounds on the things that are created and sustained by Christ. He, said, he goes first with the category of, of heaven and earth. Let's consider things on earth first. Everything there is and everything there was on earth is and was created and sustained by Christ. The implications of that are absolutely staggering. Let's consider just one category of earthly things. Let's consider political authorities. Every political authority has its being because of Christ. And because of this, they are subject to Christ. Now, there are many Christians that think that Christians shouldn't be political and uh, actually tend to agree. If, if by that you mean that Christians shouldn't be consumed by the, vicis- the vicissitudes and, and tumult of American politics, then, then I, I tend to agree. But if, brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the Christian faith is inherently political. To be a Christian is to bow the knee to King Jesus. It's to submit to his powers. It's to submit to his policies. It is to surrender every square inch of your life to his governance. It is to yield to him as captain and commander of your soul. And it is to recognize that every kingdom under earth, every earthly power, whether good or evil, is created and sustained by Christ. Though Christ is not the author of sin or bears any responsibility for the fall, he is the creator and sustainer of every figure in human history. Think about the movers and shakers that you learned about in your history class. Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, Marcus Aurelius, Julius Caesar, Henry VIII, the tyrant King George III, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Winston Churchill, Joseph Stalin. They all lived, played, and died under the jurisdiction of Christ. Think of present leaders of nation states, Joseph Biden, Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, Xi Jinping. All these people were created by Christ. They are all allowed their next heartbeat and puff of air by the will and power of Jesus. There is no event of history, brothers and sisters, no presidential mandate, no king's decree, no court's ruling, no imam's dictate, no instance of parental abuse, no exercise of power, no force for good or evil that is not subject to Christ. By him all things were created, whether, on he- whether in heaven or on earth. The apostle continues, he says, For by him all things were created, in, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now, though it's not immediately obvious, most of the scholars I read believe that, that thrones and dominions and, and rulers and authorities, those, those phrases, they modify things that are invisible. So when, when Paul is talking about thrones and dominions and rules and authorities, he's actually referring to things that are invisible. Well, if that's true, Paul is giving considerable attention to Christ's sovereignty over the infinite number of unseen things that work in our world. Unseen things in this universe. Perhaps you've wondered if there's extraterrestrial life. Is there life on Mars? Is there life on Neptune? Is there life on Jupiter? I know you expected to get answers here this morning. I don't know. But this I do know. There are unseen realms and forces that are work in this world, many for good and many for evil. 
And over all of these, Christ is preeminent. He is intimately in control. Even such forces that have been profoundly corrupted by sin, they do not operate outside the sphere of his sovereignty. All things are subject to Christ. All things are created and sustained by Christ. And lastly, all things were created for Christ. All things were created for Christ's pleasure and his glory. Look at verse 16. It ends, all things were created through him and for him. Friends, this matters for a host of reasons. One of the reasons this matters is because there is an, there, this is another way we see Christ's place in the Godhead. And friends, this matters because there are people in this world that say Jesus is a wonderful teacher. In fact, I follow Jesus. Jesus is a wonderful person. He's the focus of my life, but he's not God. He's not divine. He was created. Brothers and sisters, how could that make sense with some of the things that the Lord says? God says in Isaiah 42, I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory I give to no other. How could God the Father abide the Son receiving any glory if it wasn't for the fact that Christ was God? That he was the eternal Son and that he was of the same substance and nature of God. All things, brothers and sisters, were created for Christ. They were created for his glory. They were created for his joy. They were created for his pleasure. And you may be wondering, if all things were truly created by Christ, if all creation exists for Christ's pleasure, why is there so much brokenness around us? If all people have been made for Christ's glory and pleasure, why do so many people reject Christ? Why do so many people, why are so many people in the world determined to displease Christ? Friends, the answer is sin. Sin stains everything. And God is not the author of sin. Christ is not the author of sin. But sin creates tension between the God-ordained purpose for all things and the reality that we see on the ground. That's why Paul speaks of what he does in Romans 8 when he talks about creation. He talks about creation in our text. What he says in Romans 8, he says, the whole creation has been groaning. Creation is groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, as believers, we live with an already not yet tension. This is an inward sense that each day brings us closer to glory. And though we are currently, truly, we are actually reconciled to God in Christ, we await an eternal inheritance. An eternal inheritance that is glorious beyond comprehension. So what do we feel now? We groan. We wrestle. We're in trial. We feel turmoil in the soul. We have remaining sin. We have remaining corruption. Our sins, they, 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 flee, they uh, prevail against us. And we seek to subjectively realize what is already objectively true, to, true of us. We once dwelled in the domain of darkness. We've now been transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And the duty of the Christian is to see that realm more realized in our lives and more realized in our world. I have been created for Christ. Each of us has been designed for the ultimate purpose of honoring Christ. 
And so much as we dishonor Christ through sin, there's something disordered in our own experience. My ultimate purpose is to please Christ. And when I displease him, I am something less than what I've, called to be, I've been called to be. Can you see how this affects Christian discipleship? How this affects the Christian life? I've been transferred into the kingdom of Christ. And he is preeminent over all things. And I have been designed for his pleasure. And I'm to fix my gaze upon this Christ. And I am to be changed. This Christ, as Colossians 3 says, is seated at the right hand of God. I'm to set my mind on things that are in heaven, not on things that are on earth. For I have died and my life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is my life, appears, I will appear with him in glory. Brothers and sisters, if Christ truly is who this text says he is, if he is preeminent over all creation, indeed, if you were created for Christ, this must change everything about your life. It must change everything about my life. It must change everything about my time, my priorities. My life must unswervingly revolve around the one in whom all things have their being. Can you see how this should also affect evangelism? I mean, why are so many people sad in this life? Why are so many people downcast, distressed, depressed? Why do so many people have struggle? Why do so many people sin? What do they need? Well, the answer is that they, it's not quite just that they need Jesus. They need more than the sheer fact that they need forgiveness of their sins. They need more than the fact that they're on the, they need more than redemption from hell. Sinner, you were made for Christ. This is written on your soul. And if you think you're happy for a second without Christ, you're wrong. Everything about your life is wrong. You cannot please Jesus. You were made to maximally glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. As we often confess, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. As Christians, our lives center around this Christ, the image of the invisible God, through whom all things were created, sustained, and subject. I mentioned at the beginning of these verses that this is or the, this message, that this is some of the highest Christology that we find in the Bible. I believe it's the Holy Spirit's aim through Paul to help us elevate our thoughts of Christ. We're to view him as, as high and lifted up. We should all be stirred to wonder at the glory of Christ. This Christ who is God, this Christ who is firstborn of all creation, this Christ in him and through him all things have their being. We should tremble at the very mention of his name. We should be spellbound. We should be staggered and amazed. And I don't know exactly what Paul thought should be the immediate application of this high Christology. But brothers and sisters, I can say one of the things that should make us tremble most if, I, if we put our New Testaments together is that this Jesus Christ who is preeminent, this Jesus Christ is supreme, this Jesus Christ who is so high and transcendent, he calls you his friend. He is near to us. He is accessible to us. He loves you. If you are his, he is holding on to you. With all shepherdly care, he holds you in his embrace. With full knowledge of everything you are, he offers forgiveness to you. 
And with heavenly regard for your soul, he intercedes for you and remains steadfast to see your salvation complete in him. The Lord Jesus is near to us. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is our creator and king and he is our shepherd and friend. And he has brought us redemption. Brothers and sisters, Christ's supremacy is such a high and lofty truth that we can be challenged as to how to apply this to our lives. So I want to close with just three brief applications. First, brothers and sisters, if Christ is preeminent in all things, then we should fear nothing. If Christ is preeminent over all things, we should fear nothing. You don't have to be around for very long in this world to know that there's darkness. There's so much sin. There's so much corruption. There's so much evil at work in the world. And you don't have to be a Christian very long to know that there are unseen forces in spiritual realms that remain present and active in this life. There is cosmic power. There are demons. There are wicked spirits determined to bring chaos in this world. Friends, there are satanic influences at work in this nation to convince our culture to murder tens of millions of unborn children. Children created in the image of God. There are satanic forces at work to erode our culture's understanding of sexuality. There are satanic influences at work that militate against widows, the fatherless, and the poor. Moreover, Satan and his minions, have his, they have their sights on the church. They are real and they are savages. And they are resolved to make shipwreck of the souls of saints. They are resolved to breed disunity in the hearts of believers. They are resolved to weaken the church's dependence on, his, on God's word. And they are resolved to lead Christians to distrust God's promises. There are so many forces at work against Christians. At work against you, brothers and sisters. Yet our text tells us that every one of them is subject to Christ. The Lord Jesus is at the helm. And the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. And not a hair can fall from your head apart from his command. As creator and sustainer, he is sovereign over all. So we have nothing to fear, brothers and sisters. If Christ is preeminent in all things, then we should fear nothing. Secondly, if Christ is preeminent and supreme in all things, we should long to please Christ. If all creation was created for Christ, shouldn't we long to please him? Shouldn't we long to obey him? Shouldn't we long to, to conform more to his image? I was with a group of pastors this week, and one of the pastors raised a question. He, he asked the group for discussion. He was asking, is it appropriate for preachers to use the word must in their sermons? Christian, you must do this. Brothers and sisters, we must do this. More broadly, he was wondering, should Christians ever feel a sense of duty? I must obey the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if we read our Bible, the answer is, of course, absolutely yes. True preaching must contain the word must. We wouldn't be able to make, this, make sense of most of Christ's teaching or most of, the, uh, uh, most of the epistles if we did not have a place for commands in the Christian life. Friends, if our text means anything, it teaches us that we must long to live life for the pleasure of Christ. 
God's purpose in revealing his son and making him supreme in all things is that we would please him. This means that Christ is due all honor and glory in every aspect of your life. So it's worth asking. Christian, is there any area of your life that you've rendered unsubject to Christ? He is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over every aspect of your life. But in your experience, in your subjective experience, is there something in your life, some corner of your heart that you are leaving unconsecrated to the Lord? Some sin? Some feeling? Some attitude? Some relationship? Some source of bitterness? Brothers and sisters, as followers of Christ, our chief aim is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The essence of our existence will be to magnify the glory of Christ. That is our future. That is what we are called to. We will worship Christ perfectly forever. And we should long to see something of that manifest in our life now. Charles Sabian says of this text, in a word, the Lord Jesus should be to us now what he will be in a better world. Our light, our life, our joy, and our all. There is coming a day, brothers and sisters, where we will no longer be hindered by any remaining sin. And the Lord Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And we will behold the preeminent Christ. But until that day, I long to see my life conformed to the image of Christ. I long to behold him in context like this as the word is preached, as we sing songs, to behold his glory and be changed by the sight of that glory. You see, brothers and sisters, if you want to grow in godliness, you need to know Christ. You need to behold him. You need to see him. I fear that many Christians, they live just paltry spiritual lives because they know nothing of Jesus. They claim his name, but they just don't know him that well. They know little in Christ-likeness because they know little of Christ. And when they look at themselves and think they look like the world, it's because it's the world that has their gaze. And they don't know how to put off sin because they don't know what else to put on. Christian, you are to put on Christ. And you do this by learning more about him. You do this by gathering with his people. You do this by learning and, and, and growing in the knowledge of him. To be a Christian is to behold Christ. It is to be a person who seeks to recognize everything that he is. It is to be a person who with unveiled face beholds his glory. As a Christian, I look to the founder and perfecter of my faith and I put aside that weight and sin that clings so closely to me. And through this expulsive power, this pleasure of knowing Christ, I can please him. Out of that, I can obey him. I can serve him. And I can render my utmost to the praise and honor and glory of his name. Brothers and sisters, if Christ is everything our text says he is, we must long to please him with every ounce of commitment and every ounce of joy. Lastly, friends, if Christ is preeminent and supreme in all things, then he cannot be ignored. If Christ is supreme in all things, he cannot be ignored ignored. I had a friend at work a few years ago that I was trying to share the gospel with, and this friend, he, 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 like many people here in the South, he claimed to be a believer, but it was just eminently plain in his life he wasn't following Christ. 
It was eminently plain in every part of his life. He's sleeping with his girlfriend. He's getting drunk at parties. He's not attached to any sort of, any sort of church or, or, or body of believers. He, he was not a Christian. And I just tried to talk to him over time and months about what a Christian is, what a Christian looks like, tried to demonstrate what discipleship looks like. And I eventually got to a place in a conversation with him where he said to me this. He said, Zach, I'm a Christian. I'm just not a fanatic. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a fanatic. What was he trying to convey by that? He's like, hey, I believe I'm a Christian, but Jesus isn't the most important thing in my life. Jesus, who he is, doesn't affect every aspect of my life. I'm not a fanatic. Friends, after considering our text, can you appreciate everything wrong with that way of thinking? Discipleship is no half measure. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. From him and through him and to him, all things have their being. All things were created for him. If Jesus is not everything to us, brothers and sisters, he can do nothing for us. He must be our all. My friend, if you're lost here today, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to know, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're here today, every member here at Emmanuel Church loves you. And we want your best. And what we really want for you is you to come to a lively knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a minister of the gospel, I need to be honest with you. This Christ who is preeminent cannot be ignored. You can go your whole life ignoring him, but one day you will stand before him. You will stand before this Christ naked, and the only thing you will have to your name is your own sin. And you will face the weight of God's wrath. It doesn't have to go that way. That can all change. If you repent of your sins, and if you turn to Christ and you lay hold of him in, in faith, you come to him as a needy sinner, as a hungry man needs bread, as a thirsty man needs drink, you will be clothed in his righteousness. And when you see him on that day, you will rejoice. Because we will be together with him. What you must do is repent of your sins. What you must do is trust in Christ. Believe that he died for you on the cross for your sins. Follow him. Be his disciple. And let me tell you, if you become a disciple, the disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it will demand everything from you. But my friend, it will feel as nothing because you will be filled from the unending stream of the fullness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, surely there is an ocean of fullness in this text. 
to consider everything that Christ is, to consider him as creator, to consider him as the very image of few, to consider him as the creator and sustainer of the world as the preeminent one in all creation. Father, help us to behold Christ. Help us to be changed from beholding him. Father, we ask that you would give to everyone in this room what they need, fuller measures of the riches of the knowledge of Christ. We ask this in his name, amen.